City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and we're on the, um, the second Wednesday of the month, isn't it? So we've got energy issues today. I'm going to talk about some energy issues and, um, and in a little while. But for the last half of the show today, it's a bit of a lazy way to do it in some ways. But a couple of Sundays ago on uh, Radio Echo Shock, the wonderful program um, coming out of Canada uh, by Alex Smith, he had an interview with a, a guest he quoted as a public intellectual, a bloke called... Gray Bracken, who's written a book called Imperial San Francisco, and he talks about cities. He talks a lot about American and Canadian cities, but he also talks about cities in a general sense. And as I said at the end of the program last week, I found it a really fascinating discussion on the role of cities. And I, I thought, apart from the fact that oh, that'll kill half an hour on city limits, <laughs> um, <laughs> more seriously, it, it's um, in, seriously, it's it's a very good interview, and I and we're going to play it in the last half of the show today. But uh, before that, welcome back to Meg Kimber. Thank you very much. Where's the pre-programmed applause that we agreed on? I don't know. Okay, can you edit that in later, Karina? Woo! <laughs> I'll see what I can find. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's good to be back. There we are, and and Meg, you're um, how are you going anyway? Yeah, I'm good. All in this lockdown thing and the extra lockdown now we're stuck with, um, how are we all handling it? Mm, mm-hmm. I kind of thought this would probably, you know, people were like, oh, you know, just a few more weeks and then you can go back to normal. And I thought, no, that's probably not going to be how it is. So I feel like mm. I've kind of had that in mind anyway, that it'd be at least probably to the end of the year, especially when Tasmania said they weren't going to be letting people back, like but letting people into Tasmania until December. And I think the Northern Territory said middle of next year, um, probably when they opened their borders. So considering all that, I thought, oh, well, there's not going to be a big change at least this year. So how about you, Kevin? No, much the same. I mean, we're just life's going to go on as it is now, but business mm-hmm. and, and the media are screaming and yelling. But I think mm. well, there's not much else you can do. I mean, uh, they're really saying now that elimin- trying to eliminate COVID is wrong. We have to learn to live with it. That's what business is saying and that's what they want. Mm. But really what they're saying is therefore that people are going to have to suffer. Some people are going to have to die for the sake of mm. keeping the economy going. And mm. certainly I, I feel for a lot, of, particularly those small business people who are, you know, probably a lot of them aren't going to survive, yeah. I guess. But nonetheless, in terms of broader survival yeah. for the for all of us, I don't know what much more the government could do other than uh, keep doing yeah. what we're doing until we get it under control and then we can start relaxing again. But the reason it blew up the second time was because we did relax and we're seeing around the world, France now, Spain, mm. countries where they've done relaxation, where they've suddenly their cases are going through the roof again. So it is a real mm. problem. And that's not to say, Kevin and Meg, that, I mean, obviously all the kind of mass media outrage and the dictator Dan business is pretty unwarranted, but that's not to say that there can be a nuanced criticism of say the enforcement of things you know the adf and police patrolling parks and the overhaul that's needed in the healthcare system since that seems to be what's driving a lot of the new cases and Mm. and workplaces and things like that and aged care of course yeah yeah however yeah overall it is i guess really the only thing yeah, we haven't mentioned, by the way, that Karina's, Karina's on the program today as well, and she's <laughs> doing the paddling for us. I'm Kevin Healy. Meg just got exclusively introduced, and that was it. <laughs> That's part of my contract demands now that I've come back. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> exactly. right. Uh, speaking of what you just said, Karina, last weekend, the, um, well, it seemed to be quite right-wing people, but the, the group who say COVID isn't, doesn't even exist for a start, but they, you know, they, they had the protest about lockdown and wearing masks, and there were shots on telly of the coppers getting into them. And I thought to myself, do the coppers realise these aren't left-wing protesters? I've, it's a rarity to see the coppers getting stuck into people who aren't left-wing protesters, but there you are. I find it, I find it rather counterintuitive and kind of funny because these people are 
kind of strangely anti-establishment and then they go into the city and say lots of things about surveillance and all this stuff. And I, and I feel like why be anti-masking if that's probably the best thing for um, facial recognition <laughs> technology and all this stuff? Well, many are wearing those, those sort of strange full over-the-face over masks, uh, um, which aren't COVID-type masks, but just masks, and yet they're protesting about masking. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but let's move on to a few items. One interesting item, a woman called Jennifer Yang ran for the federal seat of Chisholm in the last election for the Labor Party. That was that very close election. And the, I think the woman who won is the, is the woman in the Liberal Party who is now being accused also of some Chinese connections, etc. There was a very close go. But so here you have, and I thought to myself, gee, she would have been a, an absolute boon to socialism in Parliament because she's now running or now thinking of running against Sally Cap as Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Sally Cap, of course, an in, you know a, a person who comes out of the the property industry, and she's a business person. But Jennifer Yang, the the Labor Party member running against her, her campaign is put the B back in the CBD, the B being for business, and she says that Sally Cap isn't pro business enough. So won't she be a boon to the socialist cause? Mm, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So we'll see what happens there. Mm. <laughs> that's great when a Labor candidate says someone isn't being pro-business enough. <laughs> Speaking of, just this week, AMP, of course, eventually, that well, he didn't get sacked eventually. He just got sent back to where he came from in terms of his previous position before the promotion. Mm. That's Bo Pahari, the sexual harasser. But just this week, just to keep up with date, QBE, the big insurance company, its chief executive suddenly left also last week, or in fact was sacked by the board last week, and the reason was inappropriate workplace communication. So it just goes on and on, doesn't it? Oh, that's interesting. Did you, you guys had a guest on the show during the last month about Western Port Bay, right? Were you talking about that there was a record number of submissions about the gas project? There was t- more than 10,000 people. Yes. Yeah, we we had her on two weeks ago again. Um, we've had her on mm. twice. Well, you, were, you were around the first time we had her on, but the second time yeah. she came on because the local council had knocked back the proposal, yeah. Right. It's a really interesting one. We're going to be following that as the hearing starts. So they start, when is it, on the 12th of October. So we'll, we'll have her back around then mm. to discuss what's happening with that. Yeah, because 10,000 people made submissions to the Environment Assessment Body, which is a new record for Victoria. So it's obviously, you know, they're doing a really good job getting the word out and people are really concerned. Yeah, and the the Mornington Peninsula Shire Council had some pretty harsh things to say about it as well. So we spoke about that. That was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, we'll keep following that one because it's ongoing. I haven't poured the tea yet. Hang on, I'm just going to do some now. Here we go. There we are, that's done. Yeah, so there's also another one at the moment. I, I found this interesting. Last week there was a full-page ad, Calbar Operations Proprietor Limited and Fingerboards Mineral Sands Project, Environment Effects Statement, Public Comment Invited. And again, it's they're calling for submissions into this proposal. Mm. But it's hard to know. We Perhaps we can get someone to talk about it at some stage because some of the things they say are that the relevant controlling provisions for matters of national environmental significance are Ramsar wetlands, listed threatened species and communities, listed migratory species, nuclear actions. The Victorian Mm. government is assessing the relevant impacts on um, MNES, that's the significance, within the EES process in accordance with the bilateral agreement between the federal and state governments, which will inform the Commonwealth approval decision under the EPBC Act, therefore, etc., being advertised and a draft planning scheme amendment to the East Gippsland planning scheme has been prepared mm. so it's down in East Gippsland to facilitate the construction and use of infrastructure associated with the project located outside the project mining license area as well as associated removal of native vegetation such infrastructure will include power to the project, a private haulage road, realignment of existing roads and water supply pipelines uh, it goes on, but the submissions can be made from now up until October 29, but we might try and find out a bit more about that because it sounds like it might, who knows, but it might well be a 
quite damaging project again, a mineral sands project mm. down in East Gippsland. Yeah, and um, I, I've heard on 3CR advertising for the Tall Trees Festival. You guys would have heard about that organised by Warburton Environment to help raise funds to support um, people who are in a court case against Vic Forests. Um, the issue there is, you know, ongoing logging, which of course is like, like you were mentioning before, Karina, the government obviously uh, doing what they can in terms of coronavirus, but in the meantime, while a lot of people's attention is distracted, there are a lot of things happening, obviously on the environmental front, especially in terms of coming back to work, um, getting businesses running again, and a lot of these issues of environmental destruction and carbon emissions and things are sort of being put on the back burner, aren't they? Yeah, and it seems like just as the AGL project in, in Crib Point isn't offering actually that many jobs in reality, especially to locals, mm. it sounds like that is probably similar in that in that regard where it, it's creating jobs in, in name and not action. Mm. Yeah, and the government also uh, has a bill before Parliament which would in fact relax environmental controls because we know the industry again is desperately saying we have to cut green tape we know what that means. Mm. So there's there's all sorts of dangers going on. As we said before, they're using COVID as a cover to one, attack workers' wages and conditions in the workplace, but also to attack environmental controls where they do exist in, in both state and federal law. So it's, it's pretty worrying at the moment, yeah. Kevin, did you hear that the Australian Services Union are claiming a win in the campaign to stop the fee hike? As we've discussed on City Limits a few times, the fee increases that have been proposed for the university? Um, I saw something, but tell us. Go on, yeah. Oh, ASU members have been campaigning for the federal government to abandon its plan to increase the costs of social and community service degrees because the ASU looks after that sector. And apparently the government has backed down and said that they'll have a discipline of professional pathways to social work without the increase in fees. So... I'm not sure. I think it still means that they're going to push on with the fee increases in the rest of the areas, but... Yeah, arts and law in those areas, yeah. Yeah, and and maybe still in social services for some other qualifications, perhaps, because there's a lot in that area, the community services, community welfare, um, social service, youth work, counselling, community development, things like that. So, yeah, the ASU did some research and saw that, like, approximately 75% of the workforce have a degree other than the Bachelor of Social Work. So, yeah, the struggle continues, but um, at least there is still possibility for people to get into that sector with qualification without that huge, huge debt. Yeah, well, it's good to have the odd victory. There was a, there was quite a mm. bad defeat for workers last week in the Fair Work Commission where Ian Ross, who came out of the ACTU, but he's now Fair Work President, mm. he made a ruling that employers and employees can agree, but it's, you know, it's employers really are going to control it on working from home at odd hours without overtime or penalty rates. Mm. So they effectively said they can order you to do things at various times, but penalty rates and overtime rates won't apply. Mm. And this is, you know, again, they're using this under the cover of COVID. And not surprisingly, Peter Strong from the Council of Small Business said he was very supportive of the proposals. Well, we bet he is. Mm. It's the most promising thing I've seen in a while. He said, I always wanted a small business award, but what he's put up, which would make it easier to keep employing someone, that's all they care about, of course. Mm. And our old mate, Innes Willock, whom we all love from the Australian Industry Group, He said it's an important initiative that would deliver much-needed flexibility to employers and employees during the pandemic and the recovery, and Mm. that workplaces will never be the same again, he says, etc. And industry groups looking forward to the upcoming discussions between employer groups and unions about the content of the schedule and the specific variations to particular awards. Well, they want variations, of course, that will make it much more profitable for them and, uh, and worse for workers. And then he says it is important that all parties approach these discussions constructively and that the award variations are finalised as soon as possible. We all know how constructive Innes is going to be, so there we are. But it's a, it's a bad decision, I think. And yeah. I was thinking, actually, Kevin, remember, this is a while ago now, cast your memory back, when I first started on 3CR, one of the first interviews that we had was with um, David Holmgren, who is one of the co-founders of Permaculture along with Bill Mollison. Do you remember that? Um, Yep, yep. um, He put out a book a year or so, about that time, I think, called Retro Suburbia, which I've just been sort of 
having a, a read of now and then. And he was anticipating in that what he thought, you know, this situation would happen because of a, a, the inability of people to work because of lack of carbon resources, I guess, you know, like a, a downturn in, um, in the ability to travel and pay for fuel for cars and things like that. And, um, but of course it's happened because of coronavirus, but it's just interesting that this whole working from home thing is an opportunity for people to feel more stressed and more exploited by their employers, but also has this opportunity for changing the way that we, that we actually work and live and maybe possibly for people to work less potentially in an ideal world. Yeah, well, that's, that's what's coming through. And I mean, mm. and really technology was supposed to, you know, back in the 50s or yeah. somewhere, the technology was going to release people from the yoke of work. You wouldn't have to work too many hours, et cetera. But yes. of course, it's, employers have ensured it works in reverse. Yeah. And now many workers are working many, many more hours. And um, Yeah, and expected to be on call pretty much 24-7. That's right. And of course, yeah. that's where things like technology and mobile phones um, play a role because you're constantly, constantly on call in a sense. Yeah. But yeah, what it does show is that work can be quite flexible. But when people like Innes Willox talk about flexibility, they don't mm. mean the flexibility of workers to decide their work hours and what they're doing. He yeah. sees it as reverse, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Look, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about a few energy issues as well on our energy day. So um, we'll be back shortly. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Okay, back on City Limits, and it is our Energy Day, so I thought we'd look at a couple of items uh, related to that. And one going back a couple of months, but I think it's, it's important, there was an item came out of England about the fact that they're building a huge um, wind farm with these 500 feet windmills looming out of the ocean offshore uh, at a place called Lowestoft. But it goes on to make the point that the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic has many businesses reeling and the oil and gas industry in particular has been rocked by plummeting prices that have forced it to drastically cut production and lay off workers. Of course, that goes to the problem we're talking about about Crib Point, where in fact you've got them promoting this gas project at the same time as prices are collapsing mm. and at the same time as around that, renewables are becoming far more affordable. So, it, you know, even from their point of view, it just doesn't seem to make sense. But it goes on to say here, the producers of clean energy are pushing hard to get their projects up and running. They want to start making money on their investments as soon as possible. And while demand for electricity has been reduced by the impact of the virus, renewable power tends to win out over polluting sources in electricity systems because of low costs and favourable regulatory rules. So, the article goes on to make the point that in all sorts of aspects, renewables now anyway are not only compete, but are, are actually knocking off mm. the old fossils. But the problem in Australia, of course, as we mentioned, I think, with Paddy Moriarty a couple of weeks ago, is that while we've got lots of renewables taking place around the states, the power grid is linked up to the old coal-fired power plants, and, and there's a real problem and it needs to be addressed very urgently. But there's, a, mm. there's a real problem in getting the the renewable energy into the grid properly. And I don't think it's going to be helped much by Angus Taylor, the minister, because he says, while transmission is an important part of the future electricity system, any investment in the grid must make economic sense. It is critical to avoid overinvestment and gold plating of the network because it is consumers who have to pay for this as part of their bills. Well, the reason bills went up so much was the privatised fossil companies, in fact, did just that, gold plating. But he says the government will continue working with its state colleagues to progress transmission projects that offer value for money. Well, his interpretation of value for money could be a real problem. Mm. But just last week, and it's, this is a real positive, Victoria announced 
a fresh wave of wind, I don't know whether whether the fresh wave is meant deliberately or not, of wind and solar farms thanks to um, the state government interest in building another 600 megawatts of capacity and the process following the state's 928 megawatt renewable energy tender two years ago will also explore business interest to buy renewable power alongside the government. And it goes on to say the new swathe of plants would help meet the state's target for 40% renewable by 2025, but it does raise questions about the grid's capacity, the point I just made. Mm. Nonetheless, um, it's, it's quite encouraging. The renewable energy generator said the announcement's timing couldn't be better in terms of boosting the economy in COVID-19. Victorians want to know what's on the horizon following a terrible six months, said Kane Thornton, chief executive of the Clean Energy Council. He said it would be critical, however, to ensure the new projects can connect into the system and welcome the government's stated intention to support the streamlining of the grid connection process and develop renewable energy zones, which would give confidence to investors. It's important to support the sector in the absence of a coherent national energy policy, which is slowing the pipeline of future projects. Jono Lenores from Environment Victoria said as well. So, mm. so there's some encouraging news there on that front. And in fact, in the last week, um, World Wildlife Fund has been running quite expensive full-page ads in newspapers saying that let's create 100,000 jobs for Australians now and they have a whole list of how you can do that with, with renewables. Mm. So there's there's quite a number of good things happening. Mm. The only problem is, of course, the bill I mentioned earlier, the government's trying to get through and they all oh, this a separate bill, but they, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation they want them to fund gas-fueled energy generation, which is hardly clean energy. And there's a bill in before Parliament. And surprisingly, the Labor Party and the Greens both opposed it. But unfortunately, it got through the Senate thanks to um, guess who, thanks to One Nation. Mm. But they're still going to try to, to stop it. But the government's making, you know, saying that, that you can use a clean energy finance to fund gas-fueled generators, mm. which seems to me to be quite contradictory. It's crazy. I mean, the people who are profiting from fossil fuels and who have the, the power and the ear of government there are going to be very reluctant to give up their monopoly, really, on all of that, aren't they? But it seems to, it does seem to be happening slowly, sort of chipping away. Yeah, you've just got to keep chipping away. But there's mm. those positives. There's a few, lot of mm. negatives, unfortunately, as well. Angus Taylor, as we know, is just pro-fossil, and he's introduced a roadmap for emission reduction, and surprise, surprise, the headline of the oil and gas industry, a major winner. <laughs> so um, that's not good news, unfortunately. And, of course, mm. we've got that federal body under Neville Power, the they're calling it the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, but its major recommendation so far is the federal government, in fact, fund pipelines zigzagging right across the country, east to west, north to south, to transport gas. So, and, and of course, the people on that power himself and most of the people on that committee come from the fossil fuel industry, so it's stacked mm. anyway. Mm. And you've got companies coming out and saying, oh, this is really encouraging. We can now invest. When they say we can now invest, they mean the government can now invest in providing us with pipelines so we can make lots of money. Mm. So uh, there are a number of negatives floating around. And in fact, a bloke called Mick McCormick, who was um, part of, he worked for a mob called APA, which is a pipeline authority, building pipelines. And he's come out last week and said a potential 1.2 billion gas pipeline between Northern Territory and South Australia could be the start of a nation building plan to transport gas from the West Coast and finally solve the East Coast gas shortage. Uh, so there you are, and here's a bloke, of course, with interest in the industry. He's now director of a gas mob called Central Petroleum, and he's called on the government to ensure that its plan to back gas infrastructure is directed at big projects that can solve the problems in the East Coast gas market and stimulate jobs and regional development. He goes on. 
he said that he's recently announced alliance, that's the central mob, his companies with, with a Chung Kong-owned company for a pipeline from Alice Springs to Mumba could be enlarged with support from the federal government's potential gas infrastructure underwriting program and could connect into a mega pipeline that could be built to take West Coast gas from Carafa. And it just goes on and on, unfortunately. Um, mm. There needs to be a strong push against that, of course, because the, mm. the government is seriously looking at funding these pipelines as, and using it again under the cover of COVID as saying it's job creating and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So there's a few items there. Um, there's quite a bit happening in that area, and but at least there's some positives. And, it, you know, and the positive is that in reality, economics as such that renewables are going to start slaughtering fossils very quickly. And that even if the crib point gas project isn't knocked back by the tribunal, and given the number of objections it really ought to be, and based on the, on the damage it could do to the environment, it ought to be obviously, which is why the objections are there. But it may also fall over just because of the whole economics of the industry at the moment, which can't compete and are going to be able to compete less and less. Mm, indeed. Well, that's about all we've got time for, I think, isn't it? Because we've got to go on to um, Gray Bracon's interview. Yes, let's do it. Here we go. That's it for City Limits. And we'll be back next week with Housing Meg. And you back next week? Yes, I'll be there. Okay. Meg, look, do thank Karina for again. She's doing a great job, including putting this interview together for us. Thank you so much, Karina. And of course, anyone who's just tuned in on their car radio, you're listening to 3CR, uh, Radical Community Radio, talking about all the issues that matter, and this is City Limits. Okay, so we'll go on to this. This is from, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, but as I say, Gray Bracon is introduced by Alex Smith as a public intellectual. He wrote a book called Imperial San Francisco, and it's a very interesting interview about the role of cities and I'm, I hope our listeners will enjoy it as much as I did lying in bed at six o'clock a couple of Sunday mornings ago. Is San Francisco becoming a zombie city? Are cities climate wrecking machines? All big questions. I'm going to call Gray Brecken an American public intellectual. His best-selling book, Imperial San Francisco, is still read and studied 20 years later. Gray appears often on television and radio. Right now, Dr. Brecken is a visiting scholar with the UC Berkeley Department of Geography. He is also founder of an important project called The Living New Deal. We have to talk about that, too. Gray Brecken, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Good to be with you, Alex. You will be presenting a new talk, Imperial San Francisco at 20, more relevant than ever, what directions will you take with the audience at the Mechanics Institute? Well, um, what I want to do is to show that the thesis of Imperial San Francisco, which I wrote as my dissertation and then became the book, is more relevant because what we don't generally talk about these days is the contribution that cities are making to the climate change crisis and how they themselves will be victimized by that. I use San Francisco as an example of what I think all great cities do, but it was actually inspired by a winter that I spent in Venice in 1985 in which I really went into how great cities actually happen and for whose benefit they happen. What was it about Venice that inspired you? Venice is, of course... I think the most beautiful city in the world, and it's unique in many ways, but it's also like other cities in the sense that its leaders took. They took from other lands around it, often at great distance from it, because it became an empire in the 16th century and on, both a maritime and a land empire. And so Venice is beautiful because of its parasitism. And that is, I think, true of all great cities. They parasitize the land around them, often at great distance, by the use of remote control technology for the benefit of a very small number of people who own and run them. And do you think there is an international network of devotees who love Venice and fear for her future now that the seas appear to be rising? Oh, absolutely. Um, Venice is probably one of, if not the most beloved cities in the world because of its uniqueness, because it's, well, when you walk through it, 
almost nothing is ugly. The leaders who built it, stitched it together, did so with immense skill and created this remarkable collective work of art. Also, I think it's the last quiet city in the world because there is no automobile traffic there. Uh, you do hear motorized uh, boats going through it, but much of the city is very, very quiet. It's unbelievable that such a treasured city could slowly slip under the sea over the next century. I talked to Luca about the flood defenses, but it sounds like they're sort of under target for what could really happen if we believe people like James Hansen when it comes to the amount of rising seas we could encounter. Yes, uh, the the flooding, of course, is becoming worse every year. Um, and what my, my great fear is that a tidal surge such as the one that happened in 1966 could happen again because Every year that the, the, the water rises, the danger of tidal surge becomes greater. And yes, I, I talked with um, one of the chief engineers of the Mose project at one time and asked him if it wasn't obsolete from the moment that it was began to be built uh, because it was planned about 30 years ago. And of course, they had no idea how much the sea level would be rising at that time. He assured me that they were completely up to the challenge, but I'm not convinced about that at all, nor are many Venetians. Um, and of course, it hasn't even been turned on yet. So San Francisco, with its fabled hills, is not too likely to flood anytime soon, but the flooding and, and the salt water can move all the way up towards Sacramento as the storms get bigger and as the seas start to rise. So it's a concern for you, too. Well, it certainly is, and San Francisco will flood because the south of market area that's about eight feet above sea level, all of that is potentially floodable as the sea level rises. The uh, At King Tides, uh, the bay is already lapping over the Embarcadero, uh, which is the eastern boundary of the city, and so it will flood um, of course, not as badly as Sacramento and some of the cities up the Delta will. Well, actually, they'll probably flood about the same time. Now, what's really remarkable is that we know that this is going to happen. Uh, it's pretty much baked into the cake. But the high-rises in that area continue to go up, as they do in cities like Jakarta and Miami, etc. The developers hope that they can just get their money out before they lose it, because of sea level rise and tidal surges. It's like one of those party games where when the music stops, somebody is without a chair. But here we're going to have millions of people who have invested in coastal real estate who won't have a chair. That's right. And uh, so far, they've been bolstered by both private insurance and federal insurance. But that's quickly going glimmering because the uh, companies in the federal government are beginning to realize that even the collective assets of the United States are not great enough to pay for the loss in real estate that's coming. I think, I think our problem really is confusing land with real estate. Land is variable. It's, it, it greatly varies, and uh, it depends on where you build, about how safe the buildings built upon it are going to be. That's very true in San Francisco, where much of the ground will liquefy in a major earthquake, and yet it's all treated as if it's the same. A grid was laid on it to not only accommodate the streets, but also the property lines, and it's all treated the same, but it's not the same. Um, wherever the ground liquefies in San Francisco, let alone where it floods, that ground will um, liquefy and the water mains and gas mains will break. And that's what concerns me greatly about San Francisco. It is in that way uh, as unique, I think, as Venice is. Well, moving on to your work on Imperial San Francisco, why of all cities in the world did you pick San Francisco as a case study of how cities use up everything around them? Well, I chose San Francisco because it's a city I know best. And also, to be honest, my Italian and Latin are not good enough uh, to study Venice, and Venice has a much longer history than San Francisco. It's, San Francisco is a relatively young city. I know it quite well. I've been studying it ever since I was a teenager walking around it. And so I thought that would be a good example of a city to study. Also, I had worked in the mass media in the 1980s as a journalist and TV producer, 
And so I became very interested in who controls the media in a city, in this case San Francisco, but I think it applies to all other cities, and how they shape our thought, not only by commission, but also what they omit. For example, in San Francisco, the two major papers up until recently were owned by the DeYoung and the Hearst families. And those families owned a great deal of the real estate, especially south of Market Street. And so they weren't going to be reporting on their personal stakes in the development potential of that land. And I think that's true to the present because San Francisco has become a one-newspaper town owned by the, the San Francisco Chronicle is owned by the Hearst family. And it would be worth any reporter's job to actually report on the personal interests of the Hearsts in San Francisco real estate. And that's true of any other city as well, too. William Randolph Hearst didn't exactly invent fake news. There was plenty of propaganda and outright fantasy in news reporting in the 1800s, and it became called uh, yellow journalism. But I think Hearst papers took that politicized fake news to new levels and a national audience. Is it fair to say that Hearst was kind of the original Rupert Murdoch? That's a very good uh, comparison. Yes, he was. He had enormous power because he didn't just own a chain of newspapers and magazines, but he quickly went into movies, radio, etc. And so he was the kind of prototype for Rupert Murdoch, who has enormous more power than uh, Hearst did at that time. But like Hearst, the people who consume um, Murdoch media, particularly uh, Fox so-called news, um, have no idea what Rupert Murdoch, what his interests are. They probably don't even know who he is. A few years ago, he gobbled up the uh, National Geographic, at which point I stopped my subscription to it because National Geographic had been covering climate change quite nicely. And he is a notorious climate change denier, so I canceled my subscription at that time. But um, I don't know how they've been covering that issue lately. I suspect that it, uh, the damper has been put on it because of the ownership and influence of Rupert Murdoch. But even without intentionally dishonest news, I have to say the so-called mainstream media that I watch, it's, it seems to be built upon violent fantasies and protection of a system of domination. Is that too much for—am I being too much of a lefty to say that, or do you agree? Not at all, Alex. It's— um... Actually, I, I, my mentor in much of this was Lewis Mumford, who pointed out that the mass media, of course, is designed largely for consumerism uh, and for diverting the public from the, the true crises that are facing us at any particular time. And I think that's particularly true now because we're barraged with images, um, very entertaining images, of extraordinary violence and sexuality. It's greater now than it ever has been. And you see it everywhere that you go, through airports or on the streets, Times Square, where jumbotrons are screaming at you at all times. Uh, people take this all for granted. And, of course, what they're not paying attention to is the greatest threat to us of all, I should say, the two linked threats, which are climate change and nuclear warfare. And this is largely because we're all now carrying around in our pockets these um, devices, which we are completely addicted to, and everybody is watching at all time. But what they're not really paying attention to, of course, is what threatens us all. Uh, a great example is the recent so-called presidential debate in which the Democratic candidates were never asked about the most pressing issue, which is, of course, climate change. Few original San Franciscans can afford to live there, I see in the news, and uh, the others are having a hard time avoiding cashing out during the high prices. It seems both San Francisco and Venice are being hollowed out somewhat of actual local people. A lot of people have left Venice, and wealthy people come from all over the world. They buy in San Francisco, as they do extra apartments and big empty houses in Vancouver or London. I fear that we're going to see a kind of zombie city that has lost its soul. What do you think? I have a problem with um, talking about cities' souls because I don't think that they really have them, but they, they are unique in certain ways. And San Francisco, of course, was famous as a kind of anything-goes 
kind of city. I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. But it was a place that people could move to and um, really become themselves in a, in a way because it was it's always been a very tolerant city. And that's not necessarily true anymore because the land values are so high. Uh, what strikes me about San Francisco now is the obscene difference between obscene wealth and obscene poverty, which you see everywhere around the city. It's very jarring. And, of course, you don't feel safe there anymore because of the degree of mental illness, which is so manifest on the street, along with homelessness. Now, all of this is linked to the ever-rising value of land property, of property values for those who own it. William Randolph Hearst wrote an, a letter to his father in 1885 in which he advised his father uh, to take the family money out of mining and put it into land. His father didn't need any persuading in that account. He said to his father, every atom of humanity added to the struggling mass means another figure to the landlord's bank account. And the Hearst became enormous landholders. They still are, as a matter of fact, including in cities like Manhattan, for example. Well, that shows that human overpopulation and capitalism are joined at the hip. For those who own the land, a rising population makes them constantly wealthier. And I think that that's too little looked at, because when we talk about issues like climate change, Human overpopulation is seldom mentioned as a causative factor in that, but I think it must be, because the population is growing against a diminishing resource base, and the end result of that can only be catastrophic. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Californian Gray Bracken, historical geographer and author of Imperial San Francisco, and in the introduction to that book, Gray, you write, recent archaeological evidence has supported Lewis Mumford's contention that war and the city were born together. Talk to us about that. Well, that statement by Lewis Mumford really sort of set me on my life course, actually, because I love cities. Um, I spend my vacations usually in cities, and I enjoy everything that they have to offer that I can take advantage of. But I also look at them as parasitic because I realize that they are that way because they took it often at great force from other cities. And in studying the history of cities, especially in Western Europe, I came to realize that, especially in the Italian cities, which were often city-states, a neighboring city became the enemy city. And those cities were constantly at war with one another because cities are concentrations not only of wealth, but of energy, of frozen energy. And a, a city such as Venice, for example, wanted that energy and wealth from its neighbors, and it would take it at great force. So Venice devastated much of the eastern Mediterranean in order to make itself beautiful. For example, Venice had a voracious appetite for wood, which was not only a building material, but also fuel, energy, in order to fight more wars. And it realized early on that by deforesting the alpine foothills, it was going to actually destroy itself because it would silt up the lagoon which protected it. And so it then went far afield. It began deforesting the coast of Dalmatia, which is on the eastern side of the Adriatic, and lands all through its uh, empire as long as it didn't affect the city itself. And I think that cities today do very much the same. Uh, they, they take from wherever they can in order to build themselves. Oh, yeah. We cut down the farmlands and, and the trees in order to put out some more suburbs that look more or less all the same and to put out more strip malls that look all the same. And it, it seems like the idea of locality is disappearing on us. Yes, uh, it, it absolutely is, because the cities are growing without limit out into their hinterlands. Um, you can see this in places like China, for example, but it's actually happening all over the world, that the cities are consuming the farmlands that actually supply them. And this is a very dangerous situation, especially as sea level rises and begins to flood those farmlands and also to raise the water tables and desalinate the water tables as well, too, upon which so many of the farmers depend 
for the water which they pump from the ground. So, again, what you're seeing is a rising human population crashing against a diminishing resource base because here again, what's really important is converting land into real estate in order to create urban fortunes. In last week's Radio EcoShock show, Australian scientist Andrew Glickson lamented the trillions that would be needed to convert our civilization and maybe save the climate are spent on the military and the next war. Is it possible our mania and our spending on war alone could prevent us from really solving the climate crisis? I'm glad you brought that up because I study what the New Deal did to improve the lives of millions of people. Um, And it did so largely because the bulk of the federal treasury was not at that time during the 1930s going towards the military. Today, we take it for granted that over half of federal expenditures are going to the military for war and preparation for more war and creating nuclear weapons, which could destroy us all within a few minutes. That money is not going towards domestic expenditures, which would, of course, include preparing for and rescuing ourselves from the effects of climate change. So I think people would feel much different about their taxes if they saw those taxes coming back to every town and every county in the country in the form of schools, swimming pools, roads, airports, etc., as we did during the 1930s. We've forgotten that that ever happened. And now as I take the train across the country, I'm just stunned by what a third world country the United States is now beginning to look. And that's because we're diverting so much of the available money into the military and, of course, not into preparing for the changes that are going to come with climate change. We've been promised a Green New Deal for 11 years now, and opponents say that Green New Deal isn't possible, and some say government planning is always evil. What caused you, Gray, to create the Living New Deal project? Well, Alex, I spent the 1980s and 90s as an environmental writer and TV producer, and I must say that I became increasingly um, depressed and pessimistic by what I was learning about what was happening in the 90s. We were becoming aware of, of climate change, climate chaos, and sea level rise, and I didn't see any way out of it. And for my own mental health, I had to find something more upbeat uh, to focus my attention on. I'd always been interested in the WPA, the the Works Progress uh, Administration, plaques and markers that I would see, and I wanted to find out more about that. And so I created this project, The Living New Deal, because I realized that we're all surrounded in the United States with public works that were created during the 1930s to get us out of the Great Depression. I had no idea, nor did anybody else, of how much we rely upon it and how our lives and those of our parents and grandparents were saved and enhanced by what the Roosevelt administration did to put people back to work and get us out of the Depression. Among those changes, of course, were environmental remediation and actual improvement because the continent had been just devastated by centuries of exploitation. Roosevelt knew that. Um, He loved trees. He loved wildlife. And he put millions of young unemployed men to work in the Civilian Conservation Corps to remediate what had been done before. And we owe them an enormous debt of gratitude, not only for the expansion of the national and state and local parks and the beautiful buildings that they built, but for the billions of trees that they planted at that time. Now, the United Nations has proposed that we could help save ourselves from climate change by planting over a trillion trees. They planted three and a half billion trees in about eight years. So that was a good start. And I think what we need now is an international civilian conservation corps modeled on the original one in order to put people to work, save them from homelessness and despair, and at the same time to trap carbon and pump more oxygen into the atmosphere. We have to look back and learn what the Roosevelt administration did that we can learn from. And you chronicle, literally from the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper, what you call the murder of the public sector, and it's going on every day. What are some of the signs and victims of that war against the public good? 
The enemies of the New Deal actually began almost from the moment that it began in 1933 to not only fight it, but to erase the memory of it. And so you see it often in the media, you see it parroted, even by Democrats who will say the New Deal didn't end the Depression, the war did, or the New Deal was racist. This is something you're hearing a great deal of these days. And what we do with the Living New Deal is to take on those myths and confront them and to um, show what a complex thing it was that the New Deal did actually extricate us from the Great Depression. And also that although it wasn't perfect by contemporary standards, the New Dealers actually tried to remediate some of the racism at the time. We can do better with the Green New Deal. It's a little difficult for me to see how I know that you're helping with the memory that is being wiped out consciously by the media of this New Deal that happened, well, about 90 years ago now. Can that memory help us think that the Green New Deal really is possible? Because we need that badly. We either do that or basically we perish to climate change as a civilization. That's my opinion. Yes, well, what we're trying to do with the Living New Deal is to uncover, to excavate a lost civilization that my parents' generation built during the 1930s, and then they neglected to tell us they had done so. And it is like a lost civilization. It's all around us. Our lives have been improved immeasurably by it. Its, its sewers, its roads, its buildings are irreplaceable at this point, and yet we're allowing it all to fall into ruin at this point. As far as the war upon the public sector, uh, I think we see it most dramatically in the United States, not only in the fact that all of our infrastructure, our public works, are falling apart, that the bridges are largely held together with rust, for example, but that we so sarcastically, it seems, call our our national rail system is falling into ruin, and the Republicans would like to do away with it altogether. And they may succeed in doing so, so that the United States would be the only developed country in the world without a national passenger rail system. Um, and we see that with all of our transportation systems. You can't have a first world country with public works that are in such a state of ruin as we have. And that's because we opted not to pay the taxes necessary to upkeep it and to feel that the private sector would do that. But of course, it, it can't and it won't do that because there's not enough profit in it or any profit for that matter. Gray, do you think the public needs to reach a state of desperation before we can make the changes we need? Alex, I think that the public is already in a state of desperation. I mean, as I look around the country, as I travel through it, I, I see the state of sickness in the United States, the horrible crisis of homelessness, which is not only spreading in our cities, but you see it along the railroad right-of-ways as you travel across the country. The homeless encampments that we're seeing now are far more squalid than the Hoovervilles of the 1930s, because what the homeless bring to the encampments are non-degradable things which they scavenge, so they are just sort of vast trash heaps. And this represents a public health menace to us all. But the other aspect of that, which is connected with it, is mental illness. And we have a growing crisis of mental illness in our country, which is perhaps best typified by the rising rate of suicides, as well as opioid addiction. And this is not a healthy country. You only have to walk through our, our cities to see that. And to see the uh, what we talked about earlier, which is the prevalence of entertainment and the way that entertainment, spectacular entertainment, as Mumford calls it, has um, replaced education so that we can't, we don't even have the tools anymore to deal with crises such as climate change because we are so distracted from what is actually happening around us and the state of ruin into which the United States and so much of the rest of the world has fallen and is falling. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio. Today on City Limits, we are playing a rerun from Sunday's Radio EcoShock, where Alex Smith interviews public intellectual and author of Imperial San Francisco, Gray Brecken. They're continuing a discussion on cities and the New Deal. Now, suppose cities weren't really engines of greenhouse gases, and they are, but supposing that wasn't the case, do you think the super city itself, just expanding and killing off the environment around it, is enough to eventually 
crash the civilization that brought those cities to be. I think that there's no question that expanding cities will destroy the planet. I, I as much as I love cities, um, they can't be, they can't continue growing as they have. The cities today are metastatic. They are growing without limit. When I wrote Imperial San Francisco, I asked the question, are cities worth it? Well, I've changed my mind since then. I'm, I'm sure that cities are worth it. They are the centers of what we call civilization. What I should have asked is, how large should cities be? Nobody today, as far as I know, is asking that question. They cannot grow without limit, because in doing so, they're destroying the very resource base upon which they depend. One of the things that is remarkable about cities as a human creation is that they become self-contained worlds. And as they grow, they become more dependent upon the hinterland around them, and yet the people within them become less aware of that very dependence. And that, I think, is the danger that we're all in, because for those of us who live in cities, the hinterland is controlled by remote control systems such as aqueducts, for example, and electrical grids. And we just take it for granted that when we turn on the tap, water, clean water will come out and that electricity will respond to the flip of the switch. Well, that very soon is not going to be happening anymore because those systems are breaking down and because the hinterlands have been sapped beyond their potential to replenish themselves. But I don't see how we can reverse that. I mean, nature would crumble if the billions of people now living in cities tried to go back to living on the land. Is there a way out of this? Frankly, uh, Alex, I don't see a way out of it at this point because what we have to confront is the twin crises of human overpopulation and resource diminishment, which comes with it. They're joined at the hip. Really, there's almost no discussion anymore of overpopulation um, when you bring it up either in the left or the right for various reasons. Um, well, you're accused, first of all, of being a racist for even bringing it up because when it was brought up during the 1960s and 70s, like Paul Ehrlich, for example, the charge was made that it was white people claiming that darker people are responsible for it. Today, we're all responsible for overpopulation, and, and along with overpopulation comes overconsumption. Well, the mass media, of course, has accustomed us all to believe that we're all at least entitled to an American middle-class way of life. And certainly the planet Earth, as we now know, cannot sustain the uh, 7 billion and counting uh, people on planet Earth all having that quality of living. And, of course, they don't. Large numbers of the people on planet Earth are now plunging into deep poverty and despair rather than into a middle-class American way of living. And that, I think, largely has to do with the fact that uh, not only inequitable economic systems, such as capitalism and hyper-capitalism that we have now, but also just because of the diminishing resource base, uh, our natural resources. Well, let's remember there was a time when we could do something, and we could again. So how can we use the site at livingnewdeal.org? I think what people need to learn is that when we're told that the Green New Deal is impossible, that it's too utopian, what we need to realize is that it's not new. It actually happened once before. The Roosevelt administration tackled the problems of despair, of mental illness, above all of poverty, which is at the root of so many of our pathologies. And they did so brilliantly. And part of that was a strong conservation program. Uh, they were environmentalists, especially Franklin Roosevelt, who described himself once as a grower of trees on, on Hyde Park, New York. A book I can't recommend highly enough is Douglas Brinkley's book, Rightful Heritage, about the uh, green initiatives of the Roosevelt administration. And one of the things that struck me most about Brinkley's book is he tells an anecdote about how when Roosevelt flew to the conference uh, in Tehran in December of 1943 during the Second World War, he looked out of the windows of the plane and he saw how devastated the Middle East was. He knew that it hadn't always been that way, but that was a human product of deforestation. He wanted the United Nations, which was actually his idea after the war, to reforest much of Earth. 
felt that that was the way of ensuring peace and uh, aborting war in the future, especially in the Middle East. And we have to do that. And we would do that, I think, through an international civilian conservation corps modeled on the original one that lasted for about only about uh, 10 years during the 1930s, and which was another idea of Franklin Roosevelt's. We have to learn what they did during the New Deal in order to see that it's not impractical in the future. You've been listening to City Limits, where we've been playing a discussion from Radio EcoShock between Alex Smith and Gray Brecken, historical geographer and author of Imperial San Francisco. Stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.